This is Africa Digest. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Your time is 1700 hours Central African time. You can find us on frequency 9625 kilohertz in the 31 meter band to Southern Africa and on 802 in the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spumale Lezondi and I'm with Amanda Machaka, Usani Matebula and Musibudi Makura. Your top stories. The African Union forms a unit to assist the body with peace mediation in the continent. Police in Zimbabwe reimpose a ban on public demonstrations in the Harare Central Business District. In economics, Mali expects to hit a cotton production record of more than 650,000 tons this year and is forced the Football Association of Zambia. Access George Luadamina as Chipolo Bono coach. Here's Amanda Machado with news. Good evening. East African heads of state have called on the AU to help ensure that upcoming elections in Somalia are conducted in a fair and peaceful manner. The East African regional group EGOT converged in the Somali capital Mogadishu on Tuesday to conduct talks regarding issues affecting countries along the eastern region of the continent. The high-profile meeting was represented by Ethiopian Prime Minister Haile Mariam Tessalen, Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta, Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni, Foreign Affairs Minister of Djibouti, Mohamed Abdelmanan, and Sudan's Ambassador to Somalia, Mahbub Mohamed Malim. In a report circulated at the end of the one-day summit, the heads of state pledged renewed commitment to war on Somalia, while encouraging the Somali government's dedication to a credible and inclusive electoral process. Head of Libya's UN-backed unity government has called for urgent talks after forces loyal to a rival administration seized the main eastern oil ports in defiance of world powers. UN envoy Martin Kobler, who has repeatedly called for a halt to the offensive led by controversial military general Khalifa Haftar, is also expected to brief the Security Council on the crisis. The United States and its European allies issued a joint statement condemning Haftar's offensive and calling for the return of the oil ports to unity government control. Congolese former rebel leader Bosco Ndaganda has again refused to attend his war crimes trial on the seventh day of a hunger strike which is posing a legal dilemma for international judges. Daganda is protesting his treatment in detention and has said he is ready to die, accusing the International Criminal Court of failing to give him a fair chance to defend himself. Daganda, who has been held in the ICC's detention unit since he surrendered in 2013, has also instructed his lawyers to stop acting for him. Daganda, once dubbed the Terminator, has denied 18 charges of war crimes and crimes against humanity arising out of savage ethnic attacks carried out in the DRC by his rebel patriotic forces for the liberation of Congo in 2002 to 2003. Zimbabwe has dropped plans to cut public sector jobs and bonuses less than a week after they were announced. This says activists called for more protests against economic mismanagement and shortages. Finance Minister Patrick Chinamasa announced the unpopular cuts last week Thursday, saying they were essential to rein in spending. 
But six days later, Information Minister Christopher Mushowe said the Cabinet had rejected the proposals that also included an unpopular plan to reduce purchases of local maize. The about 10 raises questions over how President Robert Mugabe's government now plans to tackle a severe financial crunch that has fueled the protests and alarmed its neighbours. And finally, food security is under the spotlight at an event that the Science and Technology Department has organized in Johannesburg, South Africa. Food experts and scientists are discussing the use of scientific research in enhancing food production in light of the current devastating drought in the country. The UN has declared 2016 the International Year of Pulses. Yancy Niehaus, the executive director of the National Science and Technology Forum, has urged the South African government to encourage the establishment of industries related to pulse production. The Department of Agriculture estimates that it's about 14 million people who have food access problems. We're trying to promote pulse crops because they all have a high protein value. They're a very good substitute for meat, which is really quite an expensive foodstuff. And for poor people, it is an option because it's so much cheaper. That's the latest news. It is 17.05 Central African time. Thanks very much, Amanda, for that update. Now, the African Union has decided to form the African Union Mediation Support Unit to assist the body with peace mediation in the continent. Experts in the field say that the AU should consider more involvement of members of the society in the peace processes. Coletta Wanjui reports. Most peace processes in Africa consider what is called Track 1 mediation, which basically involves use of diplomacy to solve crisis. However, experts in mediation say that Track 2, which is the involvement of the members of society in peace processes, is often ignored, yet it is the most effective. Dr. Ozonia Ojielo, the Africa Regional Director for UNDP on Governance and Peace Building, says involvement of society members in conflict resolution should be the way forward. Because they are in the community. They may belong to one side in the conflict, but because they are seen as respected and impartial, both sides are willing to talk to them. These are the persons, men and women, who come to the parties and keep saying to them, you signed, you promised, you committed, deliver. So they keep tracking they implement, you keep tracking the performance and they keep feeding back to the official track one. Dr. Ozonia has been involved in over 15 peace processes. In some, he was in direct mediation, while in others he offered technical assistance. He says those processes where the private sector was included often produced faster results of peace. Take Liberia, for example, the heroic crew that Lemabubi and the women of uh, Liberia played. They were keys, but that's a track two process. It wasn't a track one process, they mobilized. They reached out to Chastillo, they reached out to Alajukroma, they reached out to all the key actors in the Liberian conflict. And they said, this country is ours as well. You must listen to us. And when the negotiators didn't seem to be listening, they went to their custom boats venue of the mediation and said, you guys are not leaving this hall until you talk to us, until you sign a peace agreement. You look at the women of Mano River Women's Group in terms of the Sierra Leone Peace Prance and the effective role that the women have played. Or you look at the Great Lakes Women's Network. Even in, in South Sudan today, the challenge is we are not investing sufficiently in building the capacities of women's groups and women's organizations. We still treat them like NGOs. 
Dr. Ozonia advises that more investment be put in existing women groups in Africa to encourage them to participate more beyond just their core outlooks for the group. So the time has come for us to invest all over again in women's groups. The problem is that many donor groups want results. It's not instant coffee. People want immediate results. You know, we give you, gave you money. We want to see change in your constituency. Well, the fact that they are speaking up is change. Because historically, women didn't speak up in many of our societies. So the fact that women are speaking up today is change. We need to go to the next level, which is strengthen them to engage in the policy platforms. In the places where decisions are made, where discussions are made. The African Union is working on strengthening the mediation efforts of the AU by setting up an African Union Mediation Support Unit. The main objectives of the unit is to ensure a systematic approach whereby the experiences and lessons learned in AU mediation efforts serve as a basis for formulating guidance and principles to strengthen the work of current mediators and facilitators as well as contribute to the elaboration of a template to support future and potential mediators and facilitators. The unit will also build internal capacity for mediation and to collaborate with member states and other regional economic blocs, the United Nations, the international community, as well as civil society and research institutes. Koleto Njoi for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. East African leaders whose countries belong to the regional trade bloc, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, or IGAD, have concluded a one-day historic meeting in the Somali capital, Mogadishu. This marked the first time that the country hosted an international meeting in more than four decades, James Shimanyule reports. The one-day IGAD meeting, which has just ended in the Somali capital, Mogadishu, was attended by Ethiopia's Prime Minister, Hele Mariam Dusalen, Ugandan leader Yoweri Museveni, but Djibouti President Ismail Omregele was unable to attend after his plane developed a mechanical problem. Also in attendance at the IGAD meeting was Somali President Hassan Sheikh Mohamud and Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta, who underscored the fact that Somalia is now safe, bearing in mind that the IGAD meeting has just been held there. The fact that uh, a summit of this nature can be held here in Mogadishu is a clear sign of the progress the government and the people of Somalia have made towards establishing peace and stability not only here in Mogadishu but in Somalia. That despite the challenges, we are moving and heading in the right direction and ours is to continue to assure our brothers and sisters in Somalia, our neighbors, that Kenya stands in solidarity with you that we shall work together to ensure peace, security and stability because the long-term wish is for us to be able to be here not to discuss issues of security but rather to discuss issues of economic cooperation, trade that will bring prosperity to the peoples of our two countries. Ours is just to encourage the people of Somalia indeed as you head towards your elections, that these elections should be peaceful, these elections should bear the will of the people of Somalia, and for you to know that you can count on our brothers and sisters. Mine really is to encourage the Somali diaspora from across the world to really come back and be part of building the new Somalia. Somalia is becoming peaceful. Turning to terrorist acts which have occurred in Somalia and Kenya, President Kenyatta pointed out that Terrorism is a factor that faces all of us. 
Biwi in Mogadishu, in Nairobi, in Paris, in Brussels. But we must have the confidence to be able to look to the future and the confidence to know that we shall ultimately win our fight against these small elements who seek to create division and destruction across the world. So mine is to encourage people, foreign investors, development partners, let us support this government, let us support the people of Somalia, let us support them in their efforts to rebuild what was once a great country. Somali President Sheikh Hassan Mohamud praised Kenya for helping to restore stability to Somalia, a country he said was gradually recovering from many years of anarchy. These two countries are neighbors and uh, we can only have one option which is to work together towards the betterment of the life of the people. It's not only the subjects but institutionalizing the economic cooperation between the two countries. We've discussed it deliberately on the subject of the cross-border trade, similarly supporting Somalia in developing institutions that are capable of dealing with the rest of the world. The IGAD meeting was held at a time when Kenya is hosting more than half a million Somali refugees, a fact that Somali President Sheikh Hassan Mohamud emphasized when he spoke at the end of the meeting. Somalia and Kenya has been good neighbors for a long time and will remain. Uh, President Uhuru Kenyatta has been playing a leading position in supporting Somalia, whether it's the refugee issues, whether it's accommodating Somali people inside Kenya. And the final remaining points have been discussed about the Wajer issue, which most of the Somali people have concerns on it. I'm very much grateful that the Republic of Kenya has understood our concerns and have, uh, the minister said will soon address those concerns in the best interest of both countries. Security is always a very important issue that concerns both our mutual interest and we will remain seized in uh, fulfilling the security. That was Somali President Hassan Sheikh Mohamud. The Somali capital Mogadishu has never hosted an international meeting for more than 40 years. It last hosted a meeting of the then Organization of African Unity in 1974. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 
Your time is 1716 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spumelele Zondi. I'm with you until 1800 hours Central African Time. Now, police in Zimbabwe have reimposed a ban on public demonstrations in the Harare Business District. It is expected to last until the middle of October. This follows an earlier protest ban, which the High Court suspended. A lawyer and former Minister of Education in Zimbabwe, Senator David Coltert, believes that the ban will have a dire negative effect. A couple of weeks ago, a police superintendent in Harare issued a banning order, and that was challenged by Tenda Diti, the former finance minister and lawyer. He went to court, and the court said that that was unconstitutional, and the court directed the police to go and rectify this banning order. Well, and issued virtually the identical order, except they've extended it for a month. So it still falls foul of the Constitution and no doubt will be challenged again. And in the meantime, that means that no protest action can be staged in the Harare Central Business District. Well, until uh, it's challenged, yes, but uh, NERA, which is this amalgamation of opposition parties, which is seeking changes to the electoral laws, has said that it is going to go ahead with a demonstration in Harare on Saturday, uh, whether this banning order has been overturned by the courts or not. Uh, They rely on a clause in the Constitution, in the new Constitution, which was agreed upon in 2013, which gives the right to all Zimbabweans to demonstrate peacefully. And their argument is that that is a clear right. The police can't change that, diminish that right in any way, and so they're just going to go ahead with the demonstration. Now, Mr. Coulthard, we are at a point where we are seeing rolling protests in uh, Zimbabwe. Are they effective, though? They're not effective on the day, but there's no doubt that they are building pressure on this regime. The ZANU-PF regime has issued a number of decrees this year. They've threatened to reintroduce bond notes, the local currency, which has angered people. They've banned imports, which really affects the informal sector, and there's growing tension. It's very difficult to vent that tension, but the one way has been through these demonstrations and stayaways. So on the day, it's not very effective, but I think the cumulative effect of it is to build pressure on the regime to respond to these complaints from the electorate. And uh, how would you say uh, this has impacted on Zimbabwe as a country and on Zimbabwean citizens? There's no doubt that the civic movement is growing The opposition has been in such disarray in Zimbabwe in the last few years. The opposition, the mainstream opposition, uh, the NDC party, has fragmented into four different factions. And I think that that's caused a lot of disillusionment. But with the emergence of the the flag movement and and other civic groups, I think that those opposed to ZANU-PF have been energized again. That is lawyer and former Minister of Education in Zimbabwe, Senator David Coltert. He was speaking to Sakina Kamwendo. Members of the Diplomatic Corps accredited to Tanzania and the business community have contributed about 700,000 US dollars and other relief supplies to help the earthquake victims. An earthquake measuring at a magnitude of 5.7 on the Richter scale hit Tanzania's Kagera region on Saturday. It left at least 17 people dead and over 200 injured, while thousands of houses were damaged. Gabriel Zakaria reports from Kagera, where region of Tanzania. 
More than 1 billion Tanzanian shillings include pledges have been contributed by diplomats and business people as aids to support victims from Bukoba Kagera region who were affected from the deadly earthquake on Saturday. The aids assistance include iron sheets, blankets, mattresses, tents and medical services which will be donated to people affected with the earthquake in Bukoba, Tanzania, a city of more than 70,000 people. The diplomats could not hide their feelings following the tragedy. We are gathered here on a very different uh, occasion, uh, an occasion that happened in Kagera, and we have heard from the Honorable Prime Minister the extensive damage that happened of a 5.7 Richter scale earthquake that happened to have destroyed, injured many people. We feel certain to those who passed away. The Kuwait Embassy in Tanzania moved immediately after it received the news of the Kigera earthquake. With cooperation with the Kuwait Charity in Tanzania, Relief Organization provide the first phase of donation amounted 5 million Tanzanian shillings, which include food, water, and building materials. The review of the Islamic Heritage Society donate 10,000 US dollars. We always say that the world is a village, but I would like to say the world is a family, especially so when natural disaster take place. As I said, that we know very well the, how painful an earthquake is, so that's why the Chinese community immediately mobilized themselves in a manner of Neighboring countries such as Kenya is already donated aid support as humanitarian assistance for the quake victims in Bukoba district. Tanzanian Prime Minister Kasim Majaliwa who led diplomats to support the victims says Tanzania is appreciating the support made by good wishers who were touched by the tragedy that claimed the life of innocent people. Leo nimewaita kwa ajili ya jambo moja tu na kama ambavyo mnafahamu kwamba mwishoni mwa wiki Today I have called you for only one reason. As you may be aware that on the weekend we got a huge tragedy that claimed lives of our beloved ones after the earthquake hit Kagera region, uh, which is our first time to experience. We had been experiencing small tremors, but not like the one hit the region. This is a new thing in Tanzania to happen. We have to accept it. We have lost our beloved ones, 17 in number, and more than 253 people injured, and four secondary schools have been affected. Among them, two are total demolished. Red Cross volunteers and staff are working on the ground as well as in the city's main hospital which is currently stretched to nearly full capacity and has limited stock of medicine. Renato Sumkaruka is Red Cross disaster management and risk reduction spokesperson. In fact, we we are working very closely with the government and the, the when is the quake strike actually one of the, the, the immediate actions that were taken by the red cross and the government was those who were seriously injured they were taken straight to the medical facilities and the less injured one were thoroughly given into to the red cross volunteers for first aid and the ambulance services so the services which have been given so far is actually medical treatment with the government facilities 
associated with the Red Cross. Three oil companies pledged to rebuild two secondary schools, Ihungo and Inyakato, that were completely damaged by the 5.7 quake within 30 days. Reporting for Channel Africa in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, this is Gabriel Zakaria. Cameroon says its lone Nile crocodile and African rock python kept in a protected area both consume more than 50% of the food budgeted for over 280 endangered species at the Limbe Botanic Garden in the south of Cameroon. The reptiles, which constitute parts of the second largest reptiles in the world after the saltwater crocodile and consumes an equivalent of the minimum wages of 20 Cameroonian workers every month, Mokikinzaga reports from Limbe, southern Cameroon. The sun is setting and the birds sing as I arrive at the Limbe Botanic Garden in southwestern Cameroon. Glenn John Ewole, one of the experts taking care of protected species, shows me the small river where the Nile crocodile lives. Caution is required when dealing with the powerful reptile. Where we provoke the crocodile to leave the pond area, it goes towards the side where there's no water and it normally rests in that area. When we go in to clean the, the pond, we have to drain the water out because the crocodile is perfectly adapted to life in water. In water, the crocodile is extremely fast because it will use the tail to swim and the back feet are webbed. So in water, it's at home. It can get to you much faster. But on land, humans have advantage over the crocodile because they are much faster while the crocodile is slow on land. So another thing we do is, before we go in, we make sure the crocodile eats a day before. And this is to put more weight on the crocodile and our movement during that period is very slow. The crocodile feeds on meat from fish, birds, reptiles, mammals and takes a variety of fruits. (laughs) By the river is a poultry farm where birds are kept to feed another protected species, the African rock python. Ewole says they do not joke with the nutrition of the crocodile and python. We feed the python on chickens, live chickens. I will feed the python just once in two weeks because its digestion is much slower than that of the crocodile. With the crocodile, it would tear its beef before swallowing, but the python will go for whole meals. And each time the python gets bigger, we have to make sure we give a more bigger meal. Before, we used to feed the python on rats, but now rats are too small. We now feed the python chickens, and there's going to be a time when chickens are going to become smaller. And from chickens, we intend to start giving the python rabbits. And there will be time the python will start going for goods. Unlike other snakes, the python is not poisonous. Instead, it kills its prey by constricting and consequently suffocating it and then eating it whole. A young python there starts eating small prey and as it grows, goes for bigger animals. The Limbe Botanic Garden receives a monthly budget of 2,000 United States dollars to take care of its 280 endangered birds, animals, and fruit trees. But the African python and Nile crocodile consume 60% of the food budget. The rest are allowed to live on the natural resources of the garden. Some Cameroonians, like Kelvin Summer, 
say the governments of Cameroon and conservationists are wasting resources in a country where poverty levels and unemployment are high. Economically, it's silly to spend close to 1 million safer funds to feed these reptiles. Many Cameroonians are suffering. Many of them are sick. They cannot afford to be taken care of, but we spend so much money to feed just reptiles, it's not good. They have been fed with uh, chicken, they have been fed with fish, and when you take into consideration the minimum wage of uh, workers in Cameroon, that is not far above 30,000 francs, it's not good. 30,000 CFA is about 51 US dollars. The crocodile and python consume close to 20 times that amount every month, but some conservationists say it can be profitable. Professor Zach Twenge of the International Center for Research in Agroforestry says poaching has been a serious problem in Cameroon. Just imagine that in 20 years you only show photograph to your child. It will be a disaster. We are trying to say that through the protection of the wildlife we could even improve livelihood. In Kenya, people pay a lot of money to go to the park. If you explain to the people that Wildlife will attract tourists, protect and restore the landscape. Then they start to understand. If they are released, the crocodile and African rock python will probably be killed, especially as many people eat them. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet, and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 17.30 Central African Time, Amanda Machaka is in studio with your news headlines. Thank you, Spamelele. Good evening. East African heads of state have called on the AU to help ensure that upcoming elections in Somalia are conducted in a fair and peaceful manner. The East African Regional Group converged in the Somali capital, Mogadishu, on Tuesday to conduct talks regarding issues affecting countries along the eastern region of the continent. Head of Libya's UN-backed unity government has called for urgent talks after forces loyal to a rival administration seized the main eastern oil ports in defiance of world powers. And Congolese former rebel leader Bosco Ndakanda has again refused to attend his war crimes trial on the seventh day of a hunger strike, which is posing a legal dilemma for international judges. Those are news headlines.
Thank you very much, Amanda. You're still listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spomela Lezondi with you until 1800 hours. Find us on Twitter and follow us. There we are on Channel Africa One. You can also engage with us on any of the stories that you hear on Channel Africa or maybe suggest new content to us so that we can also cover or you can email that to us if you don't like Twitter. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at Channel Africa. Now, a new report by the International Medical Humanitarian Agency, Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, has called for countries to align medical research and development with people's health needs. The report, titled Lives on the Edge, is launched as world leaders gather in New York this week for the United Nations General Assembly. To speak to us more about this, we're joined on the line by Judith Rias, who is MSF's Access Campaign Legal Policy Advisor in the United States. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa. Hi, good afternoon. Now, could you tell us why you are raising this issue? Is research generally not aligned to the needs of the people in in the countries it's done in? Uh, With our medical experience um, and and, and more than 40 years trying to respond to a variety of uh, global health needs, we basically have come to a conclusion that no, it does not. Um, There's many and urgent medical needs that are currently uh, not appropriately met by the current research and development system. There are many innovation gaps. Uh, There is a lack of research and development on urgently needed medicines, diagnostics, and vaccines that do not exist. And when innovation happens, uh, when we're lucky enough to have an innovation breakthrough, these medicines, these vaccines, these diagnostics are not available to all the people in need. So, yeah, we do not think the way the current medical research and development system works is aligned with people's health needs. Do you have examples for us? Many. Um, I mean, we do have many innovation challenges in terms of lack of access uh, uh, to medical tools that we need in our medical operations. Uh, just right now here in the United in the UN, in New York, uh, member states are preparing to try to respond to the increases challenges caused by antimicrobial resistance and the lack of innovation and new uh, antibiotics. Um, um, We do have many challenges in trying to appropriately treat, uh, diagnose, and prevent uh, multidrug-resistant tuberculosis in many of our medical operations. Uh, As you know, um, uh, we still do not have an appropriate vaccine or treatment for Ebola, even if Ebola... uh, we started um, having medical operations in Ebola years ago, and Ebola was first discovered in 1976. So there is just three examples of how um, we have huge innovation gaps because the current research and development system has not prioritized the needs of population in need, especially if these populations are poor and marginalized, as many of the population that MSF tries to care for are. Mm. Um, so what do you then say needs to be done? Should the countries in, in the places where there's a lot of need, for example, you speak about Ebola and we know that um, it's a big problem in West Africa. Should it then not be those countries who, who come to the fore and perhaps try to, to give a bit more funding towards research that's going to help in those regions? Funding for research and development, public funding for research and development is very important, uh, and governments should step up on ensuring that the public health needs of populations are addressed. But it's not a problem only, a problem of lack of funding. It's also how it's also a problem of how the funding is being spent. There is, in fact, quite a lot of money um, from um, several countries dedicated to research and development, 
And even the private sector also invests in research and development. The problem is that um, these research and development priorities are being set by an agenda that prioritizes the needs of people that can pay high prices or um, um, benefit from the current innovation system. So the, therefore, we have major gaps in how these innovation priorities are being addressed. Mm. Um, Judith, who then decides how that uh, or where that funding goes? So normally the funder identifies where the funding goes, and um, uh, there is a lack of uh, prioritization of public health needs based on on, on 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 the needs of the people that are suffering from diseases, especially if um, if the needs are the needs of the poor and marginalized populations. That's why um, we, in our report that we released today, um, very much aligned with the report of the UN Secretary General High Level Panel on access to medicines also just released today, uh, is recommending and recognizing the need for governments to uh, prioritize um, uh, uh, changes in the way coordination and priority setting is being done for research and development. So the needs of population, no matter where they live and no matter what their um, economic power is, um, uh, are prioritized appropriately. Mm. Um, and at Doctors Without Borders, um, how do you decide where the funding goes and which areas you're going to do research in? So Doctors Without Borders um, is a medical humanitarian organization. We mostly do medical um, medical work. We do dedicate a little bit of our budget, but very little in comparison to our operational budget to research and development. And traditionally, we have prioritized neglected diseases um, to the funding of organizations like Drugs for Neglected Diseases, or DNDI. We have tried to ensure that there is more innovation on neglected patients and neglected diseases. Uh, It's not the first time you are raising this concern. Um, What happened the first time around? Did anyone listen, and what do you expect to happen this time around? No, it's not the first time. I I guess we've been, for many years, noticing the challenges of the current innovation system, meaning the the lack of innovation uh, for patients' needs, but also the lack of affordability and access to existing medical tools. And um, we we are launching this report today, um, and, and we're really stepping up in our public call because we think um, uh, something needs to fundamentally change and it's um, time for government leadership on changing the way research development is being done has, has to arrive. We, um, we see that many of the challenges of the current innovation system, including the lack of affordability of medicine, that had traditionally been majorly a concern for developing countries and medical humanitarian organizations and poor patients, uh, are now becoming more global. We see concerns on the lack of affordability of medicines as well as the lack of innovation also being raised in Europe and here in the United States where I live, um, where you have members of Congress and in general, the general public um, really complaining and concerned about the lack of access to essential medical tools and the lack of innovation, like, for example, with the antibiotic resistant example that I was mentioning to you. And that's what we have decided to really call for governments and the United, the United Nations and the private sector, pharmaceutical companies, to really step up on changing the way research and development is being done and for who, and even more importantly, how it's being made affordable and accessible so everybody has access to scientific knowledge. All right, Stuart Rios, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for, for having us.
That is Judith Rios. She is MSF's Access Campaign Legal Policy Advisor in the United States of America. Now, when one thinks about chronic conditions that are commonly painful, HIV doesn't typically spring to mind. However, new research has shown that more than 50% of HIV-positive individuals experience a painful condition like headache and chest pain, and that pain is frequently experienced as moderate to severe in intensity. This finding is contained in the report's resilience does not explain the dissociation between chronic pain and physical activity in South Africans living with HIV. The report was put together by researchers at South Africa's University of Witwatersrand who sought to investigate whether pain affects function in HIV-positive individuals as it does in many other clinical conditions. Dr. Antonia Wakeley is a researcher based at the School of Physiology at the University. Well, in our lab at VITS, we've been looking at pain in people with HIV for quite a long time now. But what we noticed quite recently was that it wasn't clear how much people are impaired by their pain. And when I say impaired, I mean how much difficulty people have with things like walking or going to work. And so what we wanted to look at is whether there was any impairment in people's activity. And we also wanted to see whether it might be something to do with people's resilience. And resilience is your ability to cope with adversity. So we wanted, one, to look and see if people were resilient and if that's associated with their activity and their quality of life and any pain intensity. And we also wanted to see if if there was any difference in activity between people with chronic pain and people without. Tell us about the work that went into putting the study together and how long did it take? So, I mean, I guess the planning was probably, it took a few months to plan the study and probably took me six to eight months, I can't quite think now, to collect the data and people wore little activity monitors for me for a couple of weeks. So that took a while to recruit people to that part of the study and to get their activity data. In your opinion, what were the most important findings of the study and what surprised you most? Well, there were a couple of things, actually. I think the first most surprising thing was that there was absolutely no difference in activity between people with chronic pain and people without. And chronic pain is pain that has people have experienced for at least three months pretty much every day. So, I mean, I'm sure you can imagine one would expect to see a difference. You know, if you've got back pain or period pain, one tends to move less. This group of people, there was absolutely no difference at all. And we looked at the activity in a number of ways. So that was very surprising. And the other thing that was surprising is that resilience was really high in this population. And actually, it didn't explain why some people were more active than others. But a couple of other things came out of the study. We also asked participants what they worried about. And patients in pain worried about everything more than the patients not in pain. So they worried about money more and about having enough food. And they worried about their family. And they worried about all of these things more than their health. So we think that patients in pain probably prioritize pain much lower than some of these other worries in their life, which might be one reason why they stay active. And when people are worrying about money and and where their next meal is going to come from, um, I think that also um, encourages them to be more active. And the other thing that came out of the study was when we asked patients 
who they'd told about their pain. And a large proportion of them hadn't told even their closest friends or their family about their chronic pain. And when we asked them why that was, because, you know, normally one would seek support from your friends and family about, you know, when you're living with pain. And it turned out that patients were often so worried about HIV stigma that they would try and conceal their HIV status and, and looking sick or looking like they had pain might reveal their HIV status. So we're wondering now whether actually HIV stigma or the fear of it encourages people to remain active so that they look healthy. Were you able to establish, doctor, why pain didn't affect function in HIV-positive patients? No. So that's going to be something that we're going to look at in future studies. And we'll probably do some qualitative research that's going and interviewing patients and asking them about what motivates them and about just a bit more about their pain and um, the struggles that they have. So, yeah. Perhaps to help us understand the issue better, what causes pain in HIV-positive individuals? And are there any common types of pain that you focused on? That's a good question, actually. And there are, there are lots of different pains that we see. We didn't focus in on any particular. We took anybody with pain they'd had for more than three months. So we very commonly see headache and chest pain and um, nerve pain in the legs and feet. Those are probably some of the most common pains we see. And sometimes those pains can be caused by the HIV itself. Sometimes it can be a side effect of medications. Um, And sometimes it's actually nothing to do with the HIV. The patients would have pain, that kind of pain anyway. So, yeah, back pain, for example. One might just see that in a normal population. So some of it is HIV specific and some of it isn't. And it's incredibly common. Half to three quarters of patients or people living with HIV experience pain. And actually being treated with antiretrovirals doesn't reduce the pain. You know, commonly people think that everything gets better when they go on to their antiretrovirals, and actually often pain doesn't improve, and actually that needs some extra medication or extra attention to help with that. Now, this level of activity in the face of pain, how helpful or harmful is it? Do you know? We don't know. Now, in some populations, keeping active when you're in pain is a really good thing and actually people tend to cope much better when they're active. But there are other groups of people where they push on through their pain and actually that level of activity associates with more disability and worse pain. So that's another thing that we're going to be looking at next is to work out whether that level of activity is helpful or harmful for people with HIV. That is Dr. Antoine Waitley, who's a researcher at the School of Physiology in South Africa's University of Witwatersrand. Time for your economic news. Here's Osana Matabula. Good evening. Uh, The International Monetary Fund will be sending a team of economic experts uh, to Mozambique next week, this to get an update on the country's struggling economy. Reports state that uh, Mozambique has more than two billion US dollars in irregular expenditure and state loans. The IMF team will also seek to review efforts to stabilize the economy. Abongile Dumako reports. The economy in Mozambique continues to be on the downward scale And this is the reason why the IMF aims to cut spending in the 2016 budget and tighten monetary policy. 
IMF spokesperson Jerry Rice says relations with the IMF donors and investors have been badly hurt by the 2013 and 2014 loans, something that also needs urgent attention. Tanzania's economy is on track to expand by 7.2% in 2016, up from 7% in 2015, boosted by construction and anti-corruption drive and better management of public resources. President John Magufuli, who has been elected last year, has launched a campaign against corruption and government waste and promised to improve transport links and other infrastructure. The IMF uh, told Tanzania in July uh, to curb public spending, which has risen on the back of its infrastructure plans, and urged the government to implement structural reforms. Meanwhile, South Africa state-owned transport parasitical Transnet CEO Siabonga Gama has accused investment company Future Growth of uh, playing to the public gallery by announcing that it will not be advancing loans to state-owned entities. Gama says the company might even have violated lender-client confidentiality. He added, however, that this decision will have no impact on Transnet. Gama was presenting Transnet's annual report to Parliament's Oversight Committee on public enterprises. He says they have written to Future Growth uh, asking them to retract their statement and apologize for their utterances that uh, there are governance and transparent issues at Transnet. Uh, Future Growth in our lives is not a very significant player. What we've borrowed there, less than 3% for Transnet um, has borrowed. We've engaged with them and indicated to them that they need to retract the statement they need to apologize to transnet as transnet we have many sources of funding there are many people who are willing to fund us Uh, we don't really know where their pain came from in terms of what they had to say Uh, we we think that the utterances that were made were unfortunate and um, the, the utterances were not warranted Mali expects uh, to hit a cotton production record of more than 650,000 tons this year after farmers increased their growing area by 14%. The yield will surpass a previous production record of 620,000 tons achieved more than a decade ago and would mark a 27% increase from last year's yield of uh, 513,000 tons. Mali is West Africa's biggest cotton producer with around uh, 3.5 million cotton farmers. And Ghana's annual consumer price inflation rose to 16.9% in August from 16.7% in July. Food inflation was at 8.5%, which is down from 8.6%, which has been recorded in the month of July. Inflation, Inflation is projected to fall in the medium term as a result of an international monetary fund program the West African country began to implement last year to restore fiscal balance and to renew its economy. Inflation is politically sensitive ahead of what is expected to be a tight presidential election in December in which President John Mahama will run for a second and final four-year term in office. And South African retail sales grew by 0.8% year-on-year in July after expanding by a revised 1.4% in June. That's according to data that Statistics South Africa has released. Analysts polled by Reuters had focused a 2% year-on-year increase in July. On a month-on-month basis, sales fell by 0.4%. Statistics South Africa says uh, the sales were up 2% in the three months to July compared with the same period last year.
Financial indicators now, the dollar trading at 14.32 South African rands, 10.69 Botswana Napula and 9.96 Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.75 to the British pound and 0.89 against the euro. Commodities gold $1,319, platinum $1,033 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil at $47.30 per barrel. And that's your economics news for now. Thanks very much, Usani. Sam for Sports News here is Mosibuti. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news. New UEFA President Alexandra Seferin has, or rather says, UEFA must show Europe's big clubs who is in charge as he made Champions League reforms his first priority. Seferin beat Michael van Prague to become the new head of Europe's football governing body. Seferin, who has been the head of the Football Association of Slovenia since 2011, takes on the remainder of Michel Platini's term of of office until 2019. This is what he had to say after being elected as president. Thank you for your fantastic support. It's a great honor, but at the same time, great responsibility. It means a lot to me. It means, and my family is very proud about it. My small and beautiful Slovenia is very proud about it. And I hope that one day you will also be proud of me. Thank you very much. The Football Association of Zambia have asked George Lawandamina as Chipolopolo head coach. Lawandamina leaves the post 14 months following his appointment as caretaker coach of the men's national football team that culminated in Zambia's failure to qualify for the 2017 Africa Cup of Nations tournament with a game in hand after a 3-2 away loss during a penultimate Group E qualifier against Guinea-Bissau on the 4th of June. Fans have since appointed Whitson Nia as another caretaker coach to replace George Lawanda Mina. Not local football news, Kaiser Chiefs are under pressure to emulate their Soweto rivals Orlando Pirates' outstanding performance or rather start to the league season. So says the club's spokesperson Vina Maposa as they aim for their first win of the season against Patnam Stars at the FNB Stadium later this evening. We've got a few nigglings as you've just mentioned but we've got good news and this is what we will be focusing on tonight. Eric Mulomwandao Tawamatoha is back and is available for selection. Sipiwe uh, Shavalala is also back in full training, and it's up to the coach uh, to assess and decide whether he's ready or not uh, through the advice of, from the medical team. And uh, Kigen Buchanan is also knocking very hard to make his debut uh, in the colors of gold and black. In the other matches set for tonight, defending champions Mamelodi Sundowns will be hoping for their first league win of the season when they welcome Marisburg United in Pretoria. Supersport United hosts Chippa United also in Pretoria. Free State Stars goes up against rivals Bloemfontein Celtic in the Free State Derby, while Golden Arrows host Cape Town City in Durban.
For Zaya Sports News at the Sawa, stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Your time is 1755 Central African time. Let's talk about top stories. So the African Union forms a unity to a unit rather to assist the body with the peace mediation in the continent. Police in Zimbabwe reimpose a ban on public demonstrations in the Harare Central Business District. And that wraps up Africa Digest for the South from myself, Spumele Lezwandi, producer Luanda Maome, technical producer Sishin Gowen, the rest of the team. Thanks for listening. Send us emails. We're on info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also send us SMSs plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One. We leave you with Gabo Mo, the soil, and Brian Tamba, plenty babies. <laughs> <laughs>